Good morning, Fullerton Free. My name is Darren. I am one of the shepherds on staff and excited to be joining with you, whether you are uh, tuning in from home or uh, we are happy to say we've got a few folks here in the room today. So as the, uh, the number of available hospital beds locally has gone up and the number of cases has gone down and all that stuff feels like it's getting a little bit better, you guys. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to being able to gather more and more uh, in the room here, which is nice. So we, we made calls yesterday kind of at the last moment and said, hey, the stats actually look really good. And so there were, uh, there's a good handful of folks who were able to sort of make plans to be here with us today, which we're happy about. And uh, you should know if you're at home, but you'd be interested in being here, uh, that, that, that we're, we're not anticipating another spike. Anything could happen, but we're expecting that the numbers will continue to decline with regard to uh, the prevalence of COVID-19 in our, in our community and that the number of hospital beds will continue to increase. And because of that, we feel good about uh, having people back in the room. And so uh, coming this week, there'll be more information in the e-news and on our app and whatever about how to come here and, and worship with us on Sunday mornings going forward. And uh, we're, we're excited to see that happen more and more. In the meantime, we'll still be streaming like we have been at 919 and 1111. And our rooftop services at 1111 and 530 will continue as well. Although I was thinking about today and the fact that like... So somebody better come to that 5:30 service, right? I don't know. Is, a, is the football thing? It's going to be really telling about our church if, if I'm the only one there. So we're going to have to. I'll report back next week and tell you how unspiritual that 5:30 crew is. Um, well, we're finishing up our series in the book of Titus this morning, which I, I don't know about you. I feel like this study in the book of Titus has been incredibly helpful. And what we'll see here in this last section uh, that Cynthia just read is in some ways more of the same. Uh, I, think, I think Paul had a very clear uh, idea of instruction, things that he wanted to say to Titus with regard to the churches on the island of Crete. And, and if we were going to summarize it, I mean, Gordon Fee, the theologian, he summarizes the book of Titus this way. Very, very briefly, he summarizes it in saying, good works for the sake of outsiders. That's the way he would summarize this whole book. That the emphasis of Paul to Titus for the churches in Crete, and then by extension for us, is good works for the sake of outsiders. And we've seen that uh, in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapters 1 specifically, it talks about the organization of churches and the way those should be organized in order to do good works, to put Christ on display, and to refute false teaching. In chapter 2, it talks more about our homes and the way our personal relationships are, are set up in order that they would put Christ on display, that we would do good work and be able to paint an accurate picture of who Jesus is in our world. And then here in chapter three, we've seen even in our social and civil interactions that there's some instruction for us about being submissive and being obedient with the goal then being that we would put Christ accurately on display and refute false teaching. So it's been a a sort of a a, a one track mind, if you will, which has to do with adorning the doctrine of God. That's a phrase we saw, remember at the end of chapter two or in the middle of chapter two. And the idea there is that we have a certain set of beliefs. There are certain things that we trust and believe and that we have the opportunity to make those things attractive, right? We have the ability to make those things attractive to a world that might otherwise reject Christ or reject the truth of the gospel as they see the evidence of that truth being made manifest in our lives. If I were going to summarize the book of Titus, I would do it this way. I would say the gospel of Christ rightly understood will produce in us an active and attractive life that draws others to Christ and refutes false teaching, right? 
The gospel of Christ, rightly understood, will produce in us an active and attractive life that draws others to Christ and refutes false teaching. Our beliefs are meant to produce in us action. Now, sometimes people have gotten these things out of order, right? And they've said, well, in order to have a relationship with Jesus, you have to do good works. We see from the book of Titus and from the entirety of the Bible that that isn't true. That it isn't our good works that save us, but rather good works are a byproduct of the grace of God which saves us. He saves us not through any merit of our own, and we're even even see that in the text we're looking at today. He saves us not through any merit of our own, but because of his gracious salvation, which is given to us as a gift, we then live a life that puts that grace on display. That's sort of been the theme of the whole book, that we would see Christ, that we would understand what he's done, and that it would transform our hopes and expectations for our own life in the way we live. I remember long before I ever wanted to be a pastor or felt called to be a shepherd at Fullerton Free or anywhere for that matter, uh, the very first occupation I ever wanted to have was uh, to be a garbage man. When I was very little, I wanted to be a garbage man. I think that may be kind of a common thing for kids. They want to be policemen or firemen. Uh, I never was interested in law enforcement. I was never interested in being a fireman, uh, although I respect and admired them. I always wanted to be a garbage man. I know, I, you know, even the phrase garbage man is not politically correct. I think now we have to say sanitation person, right? San- I wanted to be a sanitation person because they're not all men and they're certainly not garbage. Uh, but in my neighborhood, uh, the garbage man would come, the sanitation person would come uh, twice a week and, uh, and he would come and in my neighborhood, they rode still on the back of the trucks. I don't know if you guys remember that. Now it's all robotic. But in my neighborhood, he would ride on the back of the truck and he would pull up in front of our house. I could hear him a couple houses down. So I knew, you know, the squeaky grinding metal and whatever. You'd hear that down the street. So as a little guy, I don't know, two or three years old, I would come and I would stand at the front window of our house and pull back the curtains and I would wait for the garbage man to come in front of our house and grab our trash. And I was, uh, I was kind of amazed that this guy would take our trash, because as a kid, I remember thinking our trash was disgusting, right? I thought it was stinky and smelly. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to take it out to the curb. I thought that, I mean, the trash for me as a little guy was like the grossest thing in our house. And so the fact that there was this man who would come twice a week and would take that trash away, I just thought, he's taking all our stinky stuff to the dump. Like, what a great thing. We don't have to keep that stinky stuff. He's taking it away. And not only does he do that for my family, but this trash man is doing that for everybody in my neighborhood, and somebody's doing that for everybody in our city. Coming and picking up their stinky, smelly leftovers and taking them away so they don't have to keep them in their house. It just seemed like... What a nice man. Like, what a good thing to do to take away everybody's stinky stuff. And so as a kid, I mean, I will say it helped when I wanted to do that job. It helped that they got to ride on the back of the truck. I'm less inclined to want to do it now because you just sit in the cab, you know? But when you get to ride on the back of the truck and help a bunch of people by taking stinky stuff away, that just seemed like the dream job for me. And so from about three to probably like age, I don't know, when, maybe, I don't know, maybe 15. I have no idea when I changed my mind, maybe 12. Uh, I, anybody who asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, well, I want to be a garbage man. I don't ride on the back of the truck and take away people's trash, you know. And I remember that looking at him and looking at what they did, it it transformed who I wanted to be. It transformed what I want to do. I looked at that and was inspired by it. We probably all had moments like that. Maybe you look at a mentor or you look at a, uh, a, you look at a leader or you look at a parent or you look at a friend. Maybe it's a school teacher, somebody that you look at and go, yeah, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be who I am anymore. I want to be somebody different. I want to be like that. Well, what What Paul is saying to Titus in this last section of chapter 3 is that our view of the Lord Jesus should essentially do that to us. 
that we shouldn't just be able to look at the gospel as a, as a sort of a theological idea and go, hmm, isn't the gospel interesting? I think I understand it. I think I comprehend the work of Christ. Good for him, right? Good for him. No, that it isn't simply a box to be checked, but that when we see him and when we understand who he is, that it should transform who we are and who we desire to be. That a clear view and a clear understanding of Christ will transform our motivations and our desires as well. So when we pick it up here in verse 8, he says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now before we can get into what he's saying there, we have to go, what what saying is he talking about? He says the saying is trustworthy, or the the saying is true, right? He affirms that a saying is true, and we have to go, well, which saying does he mean, right? Now, it's, it's worth noting that in, in the pastoral letters, Paul uses this idea of a trustworthy saying uh, five different times. This is just one of them. But here, when he's talking about the trustworthy saying, he's referring back to what he's just said. So in the passage that Zach beautifully taught last week, at the end of that section, remember at the beginning it talks about submission to authority, but at the end of the section we studied last week, there is a very clear articulation of the gospel in what is essentially one run-on sentence between like verses 3 and 7. And I think it's beneficial for us this morning as we see what, what Paul's thinking here to kind of go back and look at that statement. Because there is an articulation of the whole of the gospel in those four verses that I, I don't want you to miss. And, it, and in fact, Here's a little side note. If you have one of our Titus journals, or if you're taking notes, or if you have your notes app on your phone or whatever, I would actually highly encourage you, no matter who you are, if you're watching from home, if you have a piece of paper, to write these six principles down that we see in Titus 3, 3 through 8 or so, to write these six principles down, because they are a a clear and and sort of concise like encapsulation of the truth of the gospel as we understand it. You know, sometimes when we think about the gospel, in churches and around Christians, you hear people throw that around a lot. The gospel this, the gospel that. And a lot of times we don't even know what the gospel is. A lot of times we can't articulate it to other people. Some some would boil the gospel down entirely to something like, do you want to go to heaven, right? Do you want to go to heaven? That's the gospel. Do you want to go to heaven? Or they might boil it down to the exact opposite. They might say, well, the gospel is not going to hell, right? Not going to hell. That's the gospel. But those, those actually don't do justice to the truth of the gospel. They, they are kind of an abbreviation that actually skips over a bunch of beautiful things about the gospel. So before we dive into to what he says this trustworthy saying should do in our life, let's look at the trustworthy saying just rapidly. I'm going I'm to give you these, and I'm helped greatly this morning uh, by, by sort of an outline that John Stott uh, wrote in his uh, commentary on Titus. He says here that, that in verses 3 through 7, uh, we see an articulation of the essentials of the gospel. And, and, and so we see uh, several things here, and I'll give them to you in order. Look at verse 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The first essential thing to understand about the gospel is the need for salvation. The need for salvation. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Salvation's need. And our need is our brokenness, our bankruptcy, and our slavery to sin, which is clearly articulated there in verse 3. What's the need for the gospel or the need for salvation? It's our brokenness, our bankruptcy, it's our slavery to sin. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. There it is. Now go on to verse 4. He talks about our brokenness. And then in verse 4 he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Verse 4 doesn't talk about our need for salvation, but it talks about the source of our salvation. 
the source. We see the need for salvation and then the source of our salvation. And the source of our salvation is the goodness and loving kindness of God. The goodness and loving kindness of God. That's where salvation comes from. It doesn't come from our beauty. It doesn't come from our worthiness. It doesn't come from God's desperate need to have people around him or whatever. No, it has everything to do. The source of salvation is God's goodness and loving kindness. In verse 4 of Titus 3, when it talks about the loving kindness and goodness of God appearing, when it appears, it's talking about the incarnation of Christ. That the goodness and loving kindness of God is made manifest in the arrival of Jesus in a body to take the sin of the world upon himself. So we see salvation's need. We see salvation's source. We also, in verse 5, see the grounds of our salvation. The grounds of it. Look at verse 5. It says in 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Right? So the source is his loving kindness and goodness. The grounds is not our merit. It's not our good deeds. It's not our beauty or our worthiness. It is the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone. It's not our merit, but Christ's mercy as demonstrated on the cross. Right? These are the essential components of the gospel. Our need, right? God's love, and then the mercy of Christ and not any merit of our own. That's the grounds of salvation. Next, he also talks about its means. How then are we saved? How then are we made new? Also in verse 5, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And here's the, here's the means. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's also worth noting, as you're sort of jotting down notes, maybe off to one side here, remark for yourself about the fact that this is such a beautiful Trinitarian statement. We see God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working in conjunction for the sake of the gospel here. But the means by which we receive salvation is in the washing and regeneration that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. We are not the same. We are not just modified. Our lives are not just improved by the death and resurrection of Christ. We are made new. We've gone from death to life. We are new creation through the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, right? So we see our need, the need for salvation, its source, its ground, its means. Look at verse uh, 6 and 7. We see its result. It says, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Again, he does that through the death and resurrection of Christ. He pours out this washing and regeneration through Jesus. Verse 7, here's the result. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The result of this saving work, the result of this loving kindness made manifest in the mercy of Christ, the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the result is that you and I are redeemed, that we are adopted, right? Our sin is forgiven. We are made sons and daughters of God. We are redeemed, we are adopted, and we look forward to resurrection, ultimate resurrection. We've been made new now and we will spend eternity with him. We are heirs of Christ and we hope for his return, when we will be with him and we will see him like he is. So the gospel, as we understand, it's not just do you want to go to heaven. It's not just do you not want to go to hell. It's that we were broken and lost, that God in his loving kindness and through no merit of our own sent his son Jesus to rescue us from sin and death through his shed blood on our behalf, through his resurrection life, which he extends to us, not by our good deeds, but by his grace. We are made new by his Holy Spirit and we become redeemed. We become his sons and daughters, adopted. We become men and women who have hope of a future. 
And it's evidence, here's the sixth and final point, it's evidence we see in our verse here in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The evidence, we've already talked about the result, the result is our redemption, our adoption, our resurrection. But the evidence of that redemption and adoption and resurrection, the evidence of that is good works. Let's take a time out. Let's just take a quick time out. I want to step outside of everything we just looked at. Hopefully you wrote that in your notes. You'll go back and study that. We need to know this. We need to know it. That's what Paul's saying. We must look long and hard at the truth of what the gospel is. This trustworthy saying. But it is worth noting here that the evidence of redemption and adoption and resurrection is good work. And if you're someone who's watching this today, or you're someone here who's in the room who would consider yourself a believer in Christ, but there is no good work in your life, if your entire uh, perception of religion or your faith has to do with an intellectual understanding that is not made manifest in your deeds, then you have misunderstood who Christ is. Because when you understand the, the means and the grounds and the result, when you understand your own brokenness, when you see what Christ did, the byproduct of that saving faith, that redemption received by grace is good work. It is good work that we would live a life of righteousness. That's what Paul is affirming. Again, he says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul says we have to insist upon it. You know, Paul doesn't say we have to insist on much. If you look at the teaching of Paul, there are very few places where he says, command this or insist upon this or don't let anybody say anything different to you. But when it comes to the gospel of Christ, what he's telling us and what we cannot miss, Fullerton Free, is that the gospel of Christ in its entirety is a non-negotiable. It's a hill we have to die on. It is the driving force behind everything we do and everything we are. And we have to not only know it, but we have to live a life that is in accordance with it. He says, insist upon these things. These things are non-negotiables. Why? Why are they non-negotiables? Well, so that those who believe will devote themselves to good works. So that those who believe will devote themselves to good works. When we insist upon the true gospel, not just getting out of hell, not just going to heaven, but recognizing our own fragility, our own brokenness, and, our, and, and the incredible mercy and love of Christ, when we see it, it transforms the way we live. Just like when I saw the garbage man day after day, it made me want to be a different kind of a kid, right? It transforms us. He says, insist on these things because they produce good works. As we see Christ, we become like him. Ephesians chapter four, verse 20. You'll remember this from when we studied Ephesians. Ephesians 4.20 says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When we see who Christ is and when we see what he's done in, in its totality, then, then we take off our old life and we live like Christ, in the likeness of Christ. Romans thirteen fourteen says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So what are these good works? When it talks about doing good works, well, we could summarize it by saying it is living a life of godliness or God-likeness. It's living a life that looks and puts Christ accurately on display. 
But I want to just give you 60 seconds. If you have the book of Titus open in front of you on your phone or your laptop, or, or maybe you've got one of our journals, just thumb back through the last three chapters and look at what he says about good works. Just go back through. Take 60 seconds and do that. What, what kind of good works does he talk about? Maybe you're underlining words like submissive, courteous, gentle, obedient, kind, self-controlled, upright, godly, integrous, pure, loving, hospitable, disciplined, showing the character of Christ. Maybe you underlined a people for his own possession, zealous for good works, ambassadors. That's what we're talking about here, right? When he says good works, he's not just talking about, about a personal morality. He's talking about good works that are produced in the lives of, of other people, that, that are for the benefit of others. We'll see that in just a second. He says we must be careful. Here it is verse, in, in verse 8. We must be careful to devote ourselves to good works in light of the gospel, in light of this trustworthy saying. Careful. Why? Because the temptation will be for us to become careless careless about good works. The temptation will be for us to reduce our faith to a series of uh, intellectual agreements, right? That we would go, yeah, I believe this and I believe that apostles creed, whatever I, I see it all, but it will never, it will never turn into putting Christ on. It will just turn into being good at Bible trivia, right? He says, it isn't just an intellectual understanding. It is a transformation of our life. So we have to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. And this idea of being careful to devote ourselves to good works, this idea of being devoted to good works is the idea of taking up a profession or choosing a full-time vocation. The original word in the Greek means make good works your full-time job. Make good works your full-time job. When you look at the gospel, you become a professional do-gooder, I guess, might be a way to say that. And as cliche as that sounds, what I want you to understand is that what Paul is declaring here is that the followers of Christ are meant in their organization to be a charitable organization. That's, meant, that's who we're meant to be. He says here in verse 8, we should be devoted to good works, careful to be devoted to good works. He says these things are excellent. That word excellent in the original language means beautiful or admirable or, or simply good. These things, these good works are beautiful, he says, and profitable. Profitable for people. Profitable for people. Now, this is important to understand too. Remember at the beginning of chapter three, when we studied last week, he says in verse two, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In this chapter, he has already said, we're supposed to live a certain way to show courtesy to all people. So now here, when he says that us being devoted, careful to be devoted or choosing good works as a full-time profession in order to put the gospel of Christ on display or adorn the doctrine of God, that when we do that, it is profitable for all people. What he's saying there is not just that it's profitable for the people in your circle, not just that it's profitable for you, although it is those things, but what he's saying here is that when we, the followers of Christ, devote ourselves to living lives of kindness and compassion and generosity and goodness and peace, that what happens is we produce something profitable for the world. That that's not only good for us, although it is, but it's good for everyone. 
The whole idea of adorning the doctrine of God is that we draw other people to Christ. That in our good deeds, we prove the truth of who Christ claimed to be. In our good lives, we prove the truth of who Christ claimed to be. It's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. By the way, 1 Timothy is very similar in theme to the book of Titus. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says, when we behave properly, when we behave properly, we become a pillar or a support of the truth. That's what we are intended to be. We hold up the doctrine of God by our conduct, by our character, by our good deeds. So here at the end of this book, Paul reminds us, this saying is trustworthy. The gospel can be trusted. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We know that when you see someone else doing something admirable, it stirs you to want to do something admirable as well. I saw a, uh, I saw a report not too long ago about a, an organization in Chicago called the Urban Growers Collective. Maybe you've heard about this. But they were finding that there were whole areas of the city of Chicago, urban centers, where the people had no access to fresh fruits and vegetables, right? So they're eating a lot of fast food. They're eating a lot of junk food because it was cheap and easy to get. And so this urban growers collective, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go out into the suburbs and the outskirts. We're going to find fresh fruits and vegetables. We're going to get good prices for them. And then we're going to bring them in. They, They refurbished an old bus, an old school bus, and they turned it into a mobile produce store. They drive into the urban areas of Chicago and they offer fresh fruits and vegetables to families in the urban centers that wouldn't no no way be able to get fresh fruits and vegetables otherwise. Right. And I saw this, uh, I don't know if it was like a news report or a documentary. I saw this, this organization, this group of people providing fresh fruits and vegetables. And it did a couple of things in my heart. Number one, There was no place in the report where they asked for money, but I went and found their website and sent them some anyway, right? I was like, I just want to be a part of whatever they're doing to help people get bananas, right? That seems so beautiful to me. The other thing it did was make me think, are there people right here in my city who don't have fresh fruits and vegetables? Are there people in LA who don't have fresh fruits and vegetables? Where can I get a bus? Like, how can I do the same thing? How do I, you know, it provoked me to want to live like that also. It provoked me not only to want to support what they're doing, but also to be like them. That's what the gospel does when it is made manifest in us through good works. When we focus on essential things, the essential truth of the gospel of Christ, and we don't let ourselves get distracted, it is profitable for us because it's the way we were designed to live. Jesus sets a model for us of what humanity can be and should be. And so when we live like him, we do live the life we were made for. But more than that, it's profitable for others because it inspires them to go, what's behind all that? I want to be a part of that as well. When we talk about unforced appeal, right, as one of our vision pillars, unblushing oddity, uh, unforced appeal that's rooted in unblushing oddity. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount and all the unblushing oddity of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And then we talk about unforced appeal. We talk about unforced appeal, uh, the, the Urban Growers Collective. They didn't have to ask me for anything. They didn't ask me to come and volunteer. They didn't ask me for financial donations. They didn't ask me to, to even remember the name of their company. They just put on display what they felt compelled to do for their neighbors. And it provoked all those things in me without a request. That's what the church of Christ is meant to be. That we don't have to go and and force anything down anybody's throat. We just live like Jesus and that will 
draw people to him. That's the way the gospel is designed to work. But the flip side of this coin, and here's where he'll finish, is that it is possible to get distracted in things that are non-essential. It is possible to get distracted and waylaid by things that are not the gospel of Christ and not the good of others. And so he gives a warning, a reminding to Titus here as well. After saying, the, tra- the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 9 then, but contrarily, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He's just told us that living a life of good works in response to the trustworthy truth of the gospel is profitable and beautiful. Now he says, if you get caught up in meaningless quarrels and meaningless dissensions and all of your speculation and all of your arguments, that that actually is the enemy of good works. It's the enemy of good works. If good works is profitable and beautiful or profitable and excellent, he says that getting caught up in all of these quarrels and all these dissensions and all these arguments about non-essential things is actually unprofitable and worthless. Now, we might be tempted to go, well, you know, I don't think it's worthless because, you know, sometimes I can win people over to my opinion. Sometimes by arguing and quarreling and sometimes by gathering people and dividing groups and and going, hey, this is what I think about seven days of creation or this is what I think about the end times or this is what I think about whatever. Sometimes I feel really good about the fact that I convinced a bunch of other people to think the same thing as me. And actually there's more of us now than there are on that side. That feels really good. No, no, no. Paul says that work is worthless. It's empty. If it divides the church if it spreads us apart, if it takes our eyes off of Christ and living a life of good works, it is unprofitable and worthless. Unprofitable and worthless. He, he goes so far in this to say, avoid them. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Don't engage, he says. Don't, don't let yourself get sucked in. Avoid them. That, that's really, I will tell you that as a shepherd and as a pastor, that's a really hard thing to do. It's really hard because people will, will come up and they'll say, hey, you know, I just, I have this concern or I have this little thing that, that's a, a pet peeve of mine or I really wish the carpet in the worship center was blue or I really wish the, we sang more hymns or I really wish we never sang hymns or, you know, whatever. And it's hard to sort of not get sucked into meaningless controversy. It's hard to not get sucked into wanting to like get in a long dialogue. But what, what is Paul saying to Titus? Titus, who was a, a church planter and a pastor, he's saying, if you let yourself get sucked into these meaningless controversies, you won't have time left over to do the real work. You won't have time left over to do the good works that draw people to the gospel of Christ. You see, my friends, the church, and here and now I'm talking about the local church, Fullerton Free and other local churches like us. The church will remain a group of broken people. Right? The gospel tells us that. We were lost. We were broken. We were flawed. We, we were desperately in need of God's mercy. The church is always going to remain a group of broken people. The church will always be a mix of genuine believers, non-believers, and false believers. And that's good. That's exactly who we want to be. We want to be a mix of those people so that we can point them at the gospel and point at Christ. But because of that... Because we're a mix of genuine, non, and false believers, sometimes we get distracted by personal opinion or preferences. Wrong motivations will always exist. Misunderstandings, people who've been taught wrongly, people who are selfish and prideful. There will be strange theological abstractions and preoccupations. And what Paul is saying here is, Titus, 
Don't let yourself get pulled into that. What's he saying? Keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And he doesn't say insist upon all of your quarrels. He says, no, focus on the gospel. It's a trustworthy saying. Focus on good deeds. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and following says this very similarly. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Listen, what Paul isn't saying here is that we can't have opinions. He's not saying we can't have healthy debates. He's not saying we can't disagree on non-essential issues. We can and still be family. We can disagree on the seven days of creation and whether they were seven strict days or whether that was, you know, 10,000 years or whatever, right? We, we can disagree on that and we don't have to divide. We don't have to fight. We shouldn't quarrel and argue because it distracts us from understanding the gospel and declaring the gospel in our good deeds. He's not saying we shouldn't care about those things. He's not saying that they are unimportant. What he's saying that they cannot be a reason for us to stand up and storm out. That they cannot be a reason for us to gather other people and divide. That they cannot be a, a, a reason for us to set aside doing good works, being peaceable and humble and gentle and kind, and instead to become arrogant, and instead to become divisive and dismissive. He's not saying we can't debate, discuss, or disagree, but that we mustn't let our speculations distract us from the gospel and adorning the doctrine of God. Dr. Newt Larson, in his commentary on Titus, says this, and I'm going to read it because I don't want to get it wrong. He says, the modern church falls prey to the same mentality, arguing and dividing over opinions, political views, parenting styles, worship styles, secondary theological issues, and a vast assortment of opinions and personal preferences that we elevate to spiritual law. Where this occurs, the result is the same today as in the first century. The church is distracted from its mission to bring salvation, love, and hope to a dying world. Rather than attracting the unbeliever to something new and good, a community of faith and the grace of God, the church then repels the outside world because of its judgmental attitude and political bickering. I don't, I don't actually know when his commentary was written, but I'll tell you, this will always be a danger for us, Fullerton Free. There will always be a temptation for us to be divided, for us to be focused on carpet colors and secondary issues and personal preferences. And we have to be vigilant to avoid those things. We have to be vigilant to avoid those things and to keep the main thing the main thing. Otherwise, listen, you've heard me say in the last many weeks, the church, uh, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that's true in a universal sense, right? It's true in a global sense. The church of Christ will never be thwarted. But this local church will not survive if we allow ourselves to get sucked into non-essential quarrels. We won't survive. There isn't a, a lead shepherd or an elder board or a group of vocational shepherds or, or a congregation that can survive. That sort of thing. That's why Paul says, avoid it. He goes one step further even in this text. He says in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This feels a little bit harsh at first, right? Whoa, somebody who stirs up division, somebody who doesn't keep his eyes on the gospel and doing good deeds, but instead is, is focused in genealogies and speculations. 
He says, warn him once. I love the fact that there's a little bit of grace there. Warn him twice. And then after that, he says, that's it. Don't, don't engage again. Be done. That feels really harsh. It's worth noting that in the writing of Paul, he tends to be very, very gracious to non-believers, right? He's very, he's very quick to go, hey, anybody who asks you what you believe, take the time to explain it to them, walk it through with them. The place where he's stronger and stricter is with people who are followers of Christ who should know better. The outsider who knows nothing of Christ cannot possibly mar the image of Christ. But the insider, who is a follower of Christ, absolutely can distort his image and repel the outside world with division. That's why he takes a harsh tone here. He says, patiently warn the divisive person. Give him a chance. Give him a chance to reconcile and make things right. But if they persist in division, have nothing more to do with them. This is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. It's similar to what Paul himself says in Romans 16, 17, and 18. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul says, we've got to avoid those. And by the way, that, he's not just talking to Titus, the shepherd in, in the churches in Crete. He's talking to all of us. We all have to do our part to go, this, this can't happen. This has to stop. Thanks, but no thanks, right? We each and every, every one of us have to engage to say, I'm, I want to keep my eyes on the gospel and I want to keep my eyes on doing good to make manifest a, an accurate revelation of Christ to the world for the good of others. I heard a, a, one, one of my friends who attends this church sent me an email a couple of weeks ago and he told me a story about the church that he had gone to previously where they, they basically got into a church split over whether or not to accept members into their congregation who'd been baptized in another tradition, right? So people who'd been baptized, they weren't baptized in this particular denomination, but they were baptized, say, in the Baptist church, or they were baptized in the Methodist church or something else. And they got into such a big fight over whether or not to let those people be members at their church that the church split, the church ultimately dissolved. He said, now there's a, there's a, uh, uh, there's a mosque meeting in that building. Well, th- that's the end result of not saying No. It's the, end, it's the end result of not saying, hey, we're not going to be divided. We're not going to quarrel. We're not going to let these, these meaningless myths and, and speculations divide us. We're going to stay focused on Christ. We're going to stay focused on doing good deeds. That is what Paul is saying to Titus. Be very careful. Be very careful. Because someone who, after, after being warned a couple of times, who rejects the truth, right, that is a person whose heart has become so hard that their judgment ceases to be reliable. They're self-condemned through willing rejection of devotion to the essentials. That doesn't mean that they can't come back, that they can't turn back around, that there isn't hope for reconciliation and restoration. But it means that in the moment, we cannot entertain division. We cannot entertain foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels. We have to be focused on the gospel, these trustworthy sayings, and being devoted to good works. Because those are the things that are excellent and profitable. He finishes his letter here by saying, uh, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to, Nico- come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to spend the winter there. For what it's worth, Nicopolis is a terrible place to spend the winter. They have uh, notoriously horrible winters. So theologians are not sure why it is that Paul decided that's where he wanted to winter, but whatever. So he says, uh, send Artemis or Tychicus uh, when I send them. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What might seem just like closing instructions, there's some really practical things here. I haven't decided if I'm going to send Tychicus or Artemis to you. Once I make that decision, you know, things will start to roll. He's giving practical instructions, but look between the lines there in that last section. And what would otherwise just be a practical greeting, he's reminding them again. Do everything you can to see that these missionaries lack nothing, that these church planters, don't, they have everything they need. What's he talking about? Generosity. He's talking about care. He's talking about compassion. He's talking about concern. Speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. They're likely the ones who delivered the letter to Titus. Send them back, right? He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works and as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. He's just saying the same thing again and again and again. And you might go, yeah, you already said that. But he's saying it again and again because we keep needing to hear it. We've studied this book of Titus essentially to look at the idea of unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. Unforced appeal happens when we focused on Christ, when we focused on our need for salvation, the, 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 the means of salvation, the grounds of salvation, the, the, the purpose of it all. When we focus on Christ and we allow these good works to be produced in us, we become profitable, not only in our own life, but in the lives of our neighbors. Profitable and beautiful in the world around us as we put Christ on display. And we can't let anything mar that image. We can't let anything get in the way of representing Christ like that. I agree with Paul and the way that he closes and saying, grace be with you all. I pray the same for us. Grace be with us all. As we endeavor to live these truths in our local community. To put on good works for the sake of the glory of God and the good of others. Would you pray with me? God, Paul makes it sound so easy uh, in Titus, right? He makes it sound so easy. You, you trust in the gospel. You understand the tenets of it. You, you, you know it in its completeness. And then you just be careful to do good works. That sounds so simple. And yet, because we are broken people, because we are biased people, because we are opinionated people, because we are sometimes people who misunderstand or who think we never misunderstand, or what are we? We are people who uh, are sometimes struggling to do good works, struggling to just put you on display in a way that's accurate. I love the fact that our salvation, the means of our salvation is the washing and regeneration of your Holy Spirit, God. Will you empower us? As our mission statement as a church says, will you empower us by your spirit to be united in sacrifice and live like Christ for the glory of God? A loving community in this place, God. Will your grace be with us all? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.